Hi and welcome to RTB, the podcast from the Northeast Ambulance Service. I'm James Atkinson, a paramedic apprentice at Northeast Ambulance Service, and in this episode, I talk to NIASA's Director of Paramedicine, Andrew Hodge, about the future of paramedicine. In our conversation, Andy tells me how he came to take on this new role, how things have changed during these few decades in the ambulance service, and how he sees paramedicine evolving over the coming years. So hi, Andrew. Uh, thank you for joining us and welcome to RCB, this uh, new podcast for North Salmon Service. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yep. Thank you, James. And it's good to be here. Um, yeah, so I'm Andrew. I'm new director of paramedicine at NIAS. I've only been in post about eight weeks. So it's a brand new post. So I, I guess I feel old now. I joined in 1995 <laughs> um, and actually joined here in Northumbria Ambulance Services. It was then in 95 up in um, Berwick on PTS. Um, and I probably did that for about two years between Berwick uh, and Annick. And then in 97, I did what they called then the advanced technician training, which was, I think it was a six week course plus two weeks driving which sounds crazy now um that that's all it would take uh and then i qualified as a paramedic in 99 and again you know that was that was a 10-week course so it still wasn't that much longer um of which i think four of that was in in theaters and in hospital um and so i was a a qualified as paramedic from 1999 and i did a little bit in australia as well probably about 2000 and then came back and came back by then Northumbria Ambulance Service had merged with Durham and we were NIAS as it is now. And um, I came into a corporate role at that point, actually, about 2001, and worked in the clinical directorate to implement um, coronary heart disease um, service improvements. So it was actually the 12 ECGs that we have now, telemetry and pre-hospital thrombolysis. Um, and a few years later, probably about 2003, there was a new thing emerging, and that was emergency care practitioner. And that was probably the, or was, the early um, formation of advanced practice as we know it now. And that wasn't in the ambulance service. So there were very few ambulance services doing that. So um, myself and quite a number of paramedics left ambulance services, which was pretty much un- unheard of at the time. Um, and left to go into primary care trusts, urgent treatment centres, community services. And that's pretty much where I was for quite a few years, developing, I suppose, my knowledge and skills around advanced practice. Um, and at that point, probably realising what we could do as a profession um, and starting to see what where we could be going through, I guess, my own lived experience of that. Um and then I went into commissioning for a little bit, about 2009, uh, and was in serious incident management pathways as well. And then at that point, um, I left the Northeast and um, rejoined an ambulance service, which was Yorkshire Ambulance Service. And that was because um, I guess I wanted to be back in the ambulance service, um, but I still couldn't see a role that attracted me in the northeast and in yorkshire that at the time they were one of the few that had um, advanced practitioners um and when i say this i'm, I'm going to say it but it comes across badly there were band seven clinicians and that for me was important not because i personally was chasing the money but because actually most ambulance services were not 
recognizing the profession at that time. Everyone was really band five and there was nothing else. So to me, it was quite impressive that another organization actually had, you know, band six, band seven, um, a career framework. So I went down to Sheffield to be in an advanced practitioner car service, you could say, responding to 999 calls, trying to prevent hospital admissions or attendances, taking GP, crew and care home referrals. Um, and I did that for about four or five years. And then in Wyland Yards, I became a consultant paramedic for about 2015-16. And, and again, that was really important. Um, people would say to me at the time, what do you do? And I couldn't really articulate that, James, to be honest with you. I didn't know <laughs> how to say what my job was. Um, but actually, through time, I started to realize it was professional leadership. It was trying to be the voice of paramedics. Um, I was consultant paramedic urgent care, so paramedics in that field and standing alongside our operational management colleagues because I was in the operations directorate, um, standing alongside them, kind of almost clinicalizing the discussion, um, informing them of some clinical implications of the decisions, and then through time starting to realize that if I developed through the four pillars of advanced practice, that I would be able to inform, I guess, future service provision and delivery and direction um, through, for example, undertaking research myself and then bringing that research to the to the trust and saying, look, this is what the evidence says. We need to go in this direction. Um, and so I started to realize where we could go as a profession more than just clinically, but in a way that would empower ourselves to set our direction. And then nearly there, James, sorry. Um, then about um, a couple of years ago, I left Yorkshire Ambulance Service altogether and went to an acute trust, Mid-Yorkshire Hospitals, um, and was director of allied health professions there before coming here eight weeks ago. It's really interesting to hear your sort of career path there. Um, obviously, I'm at the be- kind of the beginning of mine as a year two paramedic apprentice. Um, obviously, the role you hold now. How much do you feel has changed from when you started the, the profession to almost me starting my career now? Yeah, it, it almost feels beyond recognition. And it'll be really interesting, James, in a way to kind of say it, in 25 years time <laughs> what what will you be saying about you know where you're standing at that point looking back at now because if i look back now to 95 or maybe i should say 99 you know when i was a paramedic um and think about what we were doing as as a profession then and it was very flat as i say it was a it was a band five role um and we were taught these skills like intubation, cannulation and things. And that seemed to be what mattered, the skills, not the thinking. So we responded to 999 calls and we, you know, we waited for the bigger jobs so we could employ these skills. But ultimately everything we took into, you know, every patient, every case we went to, we just took it to hospital, took the patient to hospital, mainly to A&E. And we didn't really give it any thought about what was best for the patient we weren't equipped to do that that's why um and I, you know i can remember now thinking back to anybody that presented with abdo pain literally just walking them under the ambulance and taking to a and 15 minutes later or less just being back out again and not nothing was questioned i guess the only caveat of that was at the time we were starting to develop you know the stroke bypass pathways we were getting into um and trauma bypass so we obviously come down to newcastle from as far as berwick and stuff so 
that was starting to begin to change, but that was what the picture looked like then. And that, to me, is very different to today. So obviously factoring all these changes that we've kind of had and that, you know, myself in my short time, the Amundsen has seen, you've just recently taken on this new role with North Southampton Service, this um, Director of Paramedicine. Can you tell me a bit more about that role and, and why you wanted to take on the role? Yeah, and it, it probably links back to the things I just said before about some of the things I did beforehand, because if you think that it was, you know, it was the first time as a consultant paramedic that um, I realised, even if other people didn't realise, but I realised or I started to realise while in that role, the opportunity for me was to be the voice of many other paramedics and to articulate what we needed as a profession in amongst the decision makers um, and try to influence that. Um, that was really difficult because I was kind of welcome, but I might not have been welcome if I was trying to influence decision with people who weren't used to clinicians speaking up for themselves in that way. Um, and then similarly, when I became director of allied health professions, again, that was the voice of the AHP profession. Um, but by that, I mean, there were nine different professions within that, you know, physio, radiography, um, orthoptists and dietitians, etc. So I realized that was moving towards professional leadership rather than clinical leadership, like a consultant, because I can't have expertise over all of those professions, but I can be in a position as close to the board as possible um, to start to move that forward for what those professions are able to do and the opportunities they have. And so this is that next natural step, I guess, and this time it's on the board, which means that the paramedic profession has a voice on the board and someone who is a paramedic sits there um, and is able to comment, um, have a constructive criticism, have a voice, and also take things to board to say, this is where I would like or we would like to go as a profession. And, and I think that's the main you know, driver for the role. Yes. So what, one of the things that's quite interesting for me is obviously I am only in year two of my uh, paramedic apprenticeship, which I'm finding um, you know, absolutely brilliant. Um, and I'm obviously I'm doing it through the trust. Um, and we're learning kind of um, working in evidence base and, and, and using justification and, and sort of academics towards our role. Um, what's your observation so far at NIAS uh, taking on this role? Yeah, I mean, if I thought I was going to come back 20 years later um, and um, it would be the same, clearly, and by the way, I didn't, but it's nothing like that. So it is like coming into a brand new organisation for me. I have to say, apart from the fact that Maureen is still on reception and Maureen the cleaner is still <laughs> there, um, still there 20-something years later. Um but obviously, you know, there are lots of familiar faces around, but the organization feels very, very different. And I think my my observations are, and it is only eight weeks, I guess the first thing to say is something around the board itself, that this is a brand new experience for me to be at board level. I've got lots to learn. It's the steepest part of the learning curve for me personally. But I, I, I sit amongst other board members and, and I actually genuinely feel a sense that you know that, that it's a new team and they're determined to do the right thing and want to take things forward um, in the right way and for me personally they want to hear what as a profession we have to say and um, where we should be going clinically within the organization and that's refreshing um, from my experiences before including an acute trust um, and obviously a huge positive for us. 
Um, I think my other observations are, you know, because it's only been eight weeks and it has been incredibly busy, the challenges getting out there and being as visible as I can. But what I do see and have conversations with people are a very hugely driven set of clinician, clinicians across you know all parts of the trust. And partly, um, I would say that there are clinical career opportunities um, in the organization. So we know we've got specs, we know we've got hearts, um, and we know we've got quite a good number of advanced practitioners, but we need to develop that more so that there are more opportunities and it's pulled together in the right, the right way so that it's, you know, governed well, set up um, well with, the, you know, the right education, et cetera, to, to create the right opportunities. And I suppose there's other pockets, James, as well, that, you know, like you'd like to just shout out, I suppose. And you mentioned it, research. Our, our research team and NEAS are excellent and actually very well renowned. And I knew that from the outside looking in and, it, you know, they do have a really good reputation and, you know, and they're paramedic led and, that's part of our profession and that's important. Yeah, it's one of the things that I've mentioned myself. I've sort of seen myself in, in my short time with the ambulance service as well. It's the kind of amount of um, pathways, as you mentioned earlier, for instance, and the amount of the, the, the places that we can take patients rather than just to a and what, what's more better meeting their needs really, um, such as the stroke um, pathway or uh, sort of cardiac pathways. Um, and it's really interesting to kind of how they're getting developed. How much do you think they're going to change and benefit over the coming years? That's a good question, James. Um, <laughs> yeah. To, to an extent, I would go back to some of my advanced practitioner training where I started to not view anything as a pathway. And pathways are important, um, particularly the acute ones. Clearly, you know, they need to be set up that way so that everybody knows what we're doing in time-critical situations. Um and maybe what changes around those pathways are some of the technology and other ways we can employ those pathways and work better with consultants, you know, who who maybe want to see what's happening with our patients before they get there. Um, but some of the other pathways, though, maybe as you work, work away from the more acute ones, um, as I say, I, I, st- I didn't operate in pathways. I found the best pathway for the patient um, by navigating the system myself. So by that, I mean, this is back in the day before things may have been set up, but I would have gone to see an elderly patient who was um, off her legs, UTI, you know, things that we all, they're not uncommon things. Um, and I might ring a reg or a consultant on call because there may be a complexity around it, have a joint conversation about it, which would take credibility on our part so that we can talk in a way that we know what we're talking about. We're having an almost level conversation with the doctor and we're doing it confidently, knowledgeably. And then they say, yeah, that's fine. Bring them straight to X ward and we'll see them there. And that's not always a pathway that that's us navigating the system. And I'm, I'm not saying that's where we're necessarily going to go because there's a whole governance thing around that. And it takes, I think, a different kind of conversation that's, as I say, more confident, knowledgeable, etc. Um, but that is one option, isn't it, that we could do as we, over many, many years, um, develop professionally and are able to do that. Brilliant, thank you. Um, just obviously, again, looking to the future, um, obviously I've, I've sort of, right at the beginning of my, my career, I'm just starting. Um, you, you've got quite a, a, a broad history of working in healthcare, um, which obviously is going to help you 
in the role. What, how would you feel that paramedicine is going to evolve in the future um, in the ambulance service? Yeah, um, I mean, it's going to con- everything always continues to evolve, doesn't it? And, and I think some of the stuff that I'm going to maybe just say here, we've already seen the beginning of, um, and it's how we capitalize on that and develop it. So the things that I was keen a few years ago to develop was how our profession, well, professionalizes and continues to do so um, in terms of its accountability and responsibility um, for the profession, for individual and for the profession. And I guess as we go into developing more enhanced and advanced practice roles, um, we are going to be able to um, operate in more clinical spaces than we do now. And so that's why I just said these things have already started. So we know in ad hoc kind of bitty ways, um, people are starting to work in primary care, whether that's in through the contracts in this trust or and when I say ad hoc, just because GP surgeries advertise as and when they need to. Um, and I guess you see paramedics going into hospitals now um, to take up ACP opportunities in ED, for example. And I know that's going to happen more and more because my time in an acute trust was really interesting as I realized how difficult it was to recruit doctors and nurses. And it shouldn't happen like this, but our opportunity is going to come from the fact that we have been able to grow into advanced practice roles over the past good number of years, but also because of the other professions are struggling to keep up themselves um, and and developing the workforce numbers where they're able to be in those traditional spaces. So I think we're going to go more and more into different parts of of the system uh, using our, and I was going to say advanced practice skills. I don't think it's necessarily always so much that. I think our profession is known for being independently thinking, thinking, and we don't particularly, unlike other professions, necessarily rely on others. And that's not always a good thing, but we, we are used to working independently and taking responsibility in a very different way than other professions. And I think that enables us to be quite unique and quite attractive to other parts of the system. Um, so that's that's one thing, James, I suppose. You would call that portfolio working and rotational working because I think the other thing is portfolio working. People, to me, nowadays don't seem to want to easily just want to stay in one part of the system. They want to maybe work two days a week somewhere in the ambulance service, two days a week in primary care or wherever you know that that is so i think that portfolio working is something that may evolve and probably we should embrace but rotational working we absolutely should uh, embrace so we've got a bit of fcp thing going on haven't we we've got some advanced practitioners and we rotate them through pcns primary care but what if we would develop our critical care specialists into roles where they were able to develop and maintain skills through rotation externally in relevant clinical environments for them. What about paramedics who are interested in end-of-life care? And we see them increasingly going into hospices because they're that passionate about that area and there isn't that opportunity in the ambulance service. So there are other environments that we could we could get into, I suppose, and probably should do because we can bring them all back, can't we, into all them skills back into the ambulance service. Yeah, I've had the opportunity the past couple of weeks in my course to kind of observe some of these different roles, um, including up in AOC with the, the, the multi-team um, of, of diff- different roles that are working um, for our 1-1 service, for instance. For instance. 
it was really interesting to kind of see the benefits of both the patients and the organization that that has um so it's gonna be quite interesting i think to see some of the changes that you know happens over the years um, that develops as that as that occurs on so, so if you had an opportunity yet, James, to be in, I suppose, as placements, have you had an opportunity to be in hospices and other environments externally? Uh, not externally, more more internally with our service. I've had the opportunity to sit with some of the doctors and, and, and nurses um, that work externally, um, working with our triage one uh, one systems. Um, and it was really unique to see uh, their aspect of um, sort of like telemedicine, um, like obviously doing uh, assessments for people over the phone. Um, and using the different systems that we have. And it was just really rest- interesting to see how much that can kind of help people um, better get the, the care that they need um, without just sending ambulances or attending hospitals. Um, and it was just a really good example of seeing how our whole system works, really, that we don't normally get to see uh, on the road and, and the benefits that's having to the service, really. Um, the biggest one is... It is important, isn't it? And, but I think through, you know, on reflection over many years... The thing that is the most important is how we can reach out into other parts of the system and work in other parts of the system. And I'm not necessarily talking about NIAS here, but let's just remove that and just say as a profession, people are leaving ambulance services historically to work elsewhere. And that, you know, there's a whole separate conversation about ambulance trusts, what they can do to retain people. But as a profession, we are now developing skills and we're only developing those skills by being elsewhere and being exposed to different conversations different parts of different types of teamwork um, and different patient presentations I guess as well um, that when people come back I think they're able to bring those skills back in in a, in a really confident way in a way that you know people are they've just developed skills they never thought they would develop and and I'm keen that that's something that we take forward going you know going forward into, into quite a few years that we just keep growing that because that's I think how we can make a bigger difference to the system and, and I guess, James, on that, we would then say we would need to develop a career framework, wouldn't we? And I, and I kind of alluded to that to begin with, that that we have specs and we have some APs and FCPs, but how do we develop those roles um, in a way that is starting to meet the emergent frameworks or the emerged frameworks, should I say, that are out there from former Health Education England and now part of NHS England, but they've worked hard over five or six years to develop frameworks that spell out exactly what an enhanced practitioner level is which are for us or specialists what an advanced practice level is and what consultant level practice is and that um, they've done that for a reason they've done that to make it quite clear so that organizations in the nhs don't do their own thing and that there is transparency in almost patient safety to knowing exactly what an enhanced advanced consultant level practice is so that no matter where you go in the system you know what that means rather than individual organizations setting the standards up for themselves. So again, to answer your question, I think that is part of the future is to really get on top of that and, and develop our profession in that way. I think that's a really good point. As, as you know, my, my whole role itself is a new um, role for the ambulance service. I'm, I'm one of the first uh, paramedic apprentices um, for the service. Um, that's obviously training new paramedics and it's a it's a role that I found absolutely brilliant um, and I'm very much looking forward to going to year three um, but also I've seen uh, the sort of development of the spec roles and the emergency care roles um, so it's been really good um, basically kind of looking at the points you mentioned there about how much the, the roles in the ambulance service are changing and, and more about what's available for us in the future to, to look at and aspire to. Yeah and I guess I suppose the only the other part 
to answer your question about where we might go in the future is leading on from that point that this isn't just about being clinical, that if we come back to the four pillars of advancing practice, and when I say advancing, it's because it isn't about advanced practice, which is a level of practice. It's about advancing our profession through the different levels of practice, of which advanced is one of them. And if we follow those frameworks and if we develop our skills along them four pillars, then I think the future for for paramedicine is a much more empowered profession that knows how to um, spot ideas for research, has the skills to get some funding perhaps, to, to write the protocol, to go to IRAS nationally and get ethical approval, and to be a chief or a principal investigator in driving these studies forward and then publishing it because that in itself raises the bar, sets um, increases credibility for the profession and allows the profession to be empowered to drive its own agenda and, and take the, the direction forward itself. Um, and it, that's just one way of doing it. You know, the, the other pillars around leadership, service improvement, expert practice and teaching, which is about role modeling for other you know um, members of our profession, teaching, um, setting the agenda at universities, informing what programs need to look like for our profession, etc. So for me, the future needs to look much more empowered through developing those skills rather than just being clinical. And that's fine. Some people may want, you know, do just want to be clinical. That's We absolutely need that, and that's great. And for those people, we need to create opportunities that we've described at rotation, portfolio, career framework. But others want to develop skills to influence and drive things forward as well and i think that's part of the future i think it's quite exciting to see what's to come really isn't it over the years and see how much it can change for the for the better in the future yeah definitely thank you very much for for joining us andrew it's been a, a pleasure to speak to you and and, and hear your, your your background and and about your role and what's to hopefully to, to come in the future yeah thank you and i'm sure you'll all have to help me get there as well Jim. so <laughs> you know you're part of it <laughs> we'll do our best <laughs> yeah thank you andrew thank you Thanks for listening to RTB. Please like the show in your podcast app. And if you have the time, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch about anything you've heard on RTB, or you want to suggest a topic for us to cover in a future episode, you can email us at public.relations at neas.nhs.uk.